Now, think about this. If we've been doing a panel on, the, on energy in the Middle East and energy policy regarding the Middle East about, oh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, it would have been a discussion about uh, the politics of the Saudi royal family. It would have been discussions about Iran and uh, the ways in which uh, Iranian uh, radical politics plays into the energy picture. There probably would have been discussions about Iraq. Um, it would have been about oil wells and Aramco and all of the other kinds of paraphernalia that goes with the Middle East energy picture uh, since the 1970s. Not anymore. Now we have a completely new energy map emerging in the Middle East, and that's what our two panelists are going to talk about. Um, this new energy uh, map uh, fits into, in my belief, what, we, what in the American shale revolution in terms of an unconventional energy revolution. That what I see American shale revolution as part of a large, even larger transformation of the way in which uh, the planet gathers and stores and expends energy, which is driven by a whole set of un unconventional technologies, including deep seismic testing, as well as directional drilling and hydraulic fracking and the other technologies that we associate with the shale revolution. And now this new unconventional revolution in energy has come to the Middle East. What our two speakers don't know about Middle East energy isn't knowledge. Uh, Brenda Schaffer is adjunct professor at the Center of Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies at Georgetown University. Um, she's on sabbatical from the University of Haifa. Uh, she's previously served as the research director of the Caspian Studies Program at Harvard University. Uh, she served as an advisor on the Government of Israel Zemach Committee on Natural Gas Policy. She's testified in front of Congress. Um, and she's really, I think, one of the leading experts and one of the people who can really sort out the enormously complicated issues relating to recent gas discoveries and the shifting geopolitical alliances in the eastern Mediterranean. Nikos Tsafos is president and chief analyst of Ealytica. Enalytica? Enalytica. This is how I want to pronounce it. And I will pronounce it that way forever. You got Safos very well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's a company he co-founded in 2014 to help organizations use data and analytics to advance energy projects. Uh, but he's also a brilliant columnist. He's an adjunct lecturer at the Johns Hopkins School at, over here at SAIS, uh, where he teaches a course on natural gas. Um, and whenever any issues come up with regard to the internal dynamics and politics of OPEC, it's to Nikos that I turn for more information and for more discussion about it. And so without further ado, uh, I'd like to hear from, and I'm sure we all do, like to hear from our two panelists. Benda is going first, is that right? Yes. So thank you, Arthur, for inviting us to be part of this really fascinating series of events and at this beautiful venue here at the Hudson Institute. It's really, really gorgeous view here on, on Washington, D.C. Um, first thing for the main, some, some overreaching geopolitical implications of, of, of this revolution. Um, one, I think that even though it really shouldn't matter, it does feed into a, 
a theme in U.S. foreign policy and a certain extent to European foreign policy that the Middle East is dispensable. You know, if we don't need the oil anymore, we don't need to be there. And I think, you know, anyone, um, you know, obviously if you know anything about how the global oil market works, well, of course, you know, the, the, the continued supplies from the Middle East, even if they're not important to the United States, they're, they're crucial to the global energy market and to, and to the price. And of course, the main reason for the U.S. to be engaged in the Middle East is if you know if you're not engaged in the Middle East, the Middle East engages you. You you you, you can't you can't disengage. Um, this morning in Brussels is a is a is a reminder how Middle East will will find you even if you're not there. But I do, I think it does feed into this narrative that we can disengage from the Middle East. That and and I think more importantly, hearing in the region. Um, the sense that the U.S. isn't interested in the region anymore because of oil, um, um, and even some of the non-oil producers. I even hear this theme in, in Israel a bit that um, you know the U.S. has waning interest in the Middle East because because of the the lack of interest in oil. I think it's a myth, but I think it does. I think that it it does feed a lot of the thinking uh, in the region. Um, a couple things on the effect on the global oil market. Um, one, one, I think it's important to remember that. The, the relative portion of OPEC, and I think Nicholas will, will expand on this in his presentation, the relative portion of OPEC and global oil production has been steeply declining um, you know, since its height in the, in the 1970s. You know, if, if in the 1970s OPEC was responsible for 60% of global oil supply today, it's, you know, it's closer to 37%. And even we can make the claim that even the height of OPEC's power, um, that, that, that OPEC wasn't really OPEC, you know, that even the, 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 the Arab oil boycott in the end, and, and ended up hurting the Arab producers more than it ended up hurting actually the, the consumers economically in the, in the end of the day. Um, but, but basically when we've, we're entering into this current part of the low, low oil price in, in, in this cycle, um, there has been, I think, also again another myth that you know OPEC decided not to ramp up, not to cut back production, as if as if it had a decision. I, I think there was no decision here because precisely because of the balance between OPEC production and non-oil production, they didn't have a choice. It's a strategy, as if you have an option. This was not an OPEC strategy. This was just dealing with the reality of the of the small proportion of non-OPEC uh, production that basically. A cutback of OPEC would have been essentially a cutback of Saudi Arabia would have only benefited other other producers, um, and and and, OP, and Saudi Arabia would have been in the same place, and you know, in terms of revenue. So, um, I think it's very important that we think about you know that um, um, it it wasn't a strategy, but this but this but 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 what's happened with the non-OPEC production over the years, which has been greatly amplified by the shale production, has has really put OPEC in a much more moderate uh, place. Where we're going to be in, in terms of a future market, um, in terms of the role of OPEC versus non-OPEC production, I think is a very big question mark, which will depend on how indeed resilient and flexible the North American production is. And I think we really don't have an answer yet about how easily we can shut this on and off, not in terms of technology, because there, of course, we can, but in terms of finance, you know, how much after these, com these companies are collapsed, after the vulture capital capitalists have, have, have eaten their prey, um, how easily it will be to reactivate the, the, these companies and their activities. And this will be, so knowing this will let us know whether the new swing producer is actually the North American production, right? Will it be the one that, that responds to price signals uh, quicker and revs up and, and reduces production? Um, or actually, we might find ourselves after this, this whole period where really the non-OPEC production has really grown, we might find ourselves more dependent, uh, if, if it's the long 
low price cycle, um, more dependent on Middle East uh, oil, almost paradoxically, because it will be, of course, because it's the cheapest production, it'll be the last production to fall, um, because it's the only economic vector in the game. So that's, you know, that's what these, you know, what they're going to invest in is, is in their oil production. So we might find ourselves at this end of this oil cycle, instead of actually uh, uh, um, having, you know, even more the importance of shale actually having hurt the non-OPEC production and being more dependent on Middle East oil. Again, it can go either way, and it's, it's a trend uh, we should watch. In terms of gas, um, also the implications are quite dramatic. So Qatar will be, you know, almost w w within, within uh, this year, will go from being, um, you know, the single top producer of LNG to one of three of the top three producers of LNG. You know, so it'll be very close with Australia and eventually with, with the United States. So that will completely change the dynamics and Qatar's role, uh, both, both in LNG markets and also uh, uh, geo geopolitically. Um, in terms of a few things around the region that um, the potential of U.S. LNG reach, reaching other markets and reaching even the Middle East, um, I think for one thing, it's helping Turkey to signal to Russia that we have other options. I mean, even if they really uh, probably will not, in the end of the day, significantly reduce their amount of Russian gas, the fact that they can signal through the if through uh, increasing LNG exports, through increasing expediting the uh, southern gas corridor gas coming to Turkey, through talking to Israel about gas, they can signal to Russia that they're they're not completely dependent on on Russian gas. Another point is that we should start thinking of the Middle East and why maybe the competition from U.S. LNG and global markets is actually a very good thing for the Middle East, almost paradoxically, is that we have to start thinking of the Middle East as a gas-consuming region. We always think about how to pull the resources out of the region, but actually the Middle East is one of the, the, the strongest growth and demand for uh, natural gas. And it's one of the only parts of the world where oil, where electricity is still produced primarily on oil. This is very polluting, very expensive. Um, and that's why we have very erratic electricity throughout most of the Middle East, you know, places like Syria, Jordan, Egypt. Um, they, they have frequent power outages. If we ever want to have any prosperity in this region, if we want, want it to go forward, we need stable electricity. Electricity is even, you know, even agriculture in the Middle East is dependent on electricity because if you don't have water pumps functioning, crops, we on the eve of the uh, civil war also in, in, in Syria as, as well. Um, and, and electricity and, and, and gas is essential to really developing desalination in the region, which is already, um, thanks to the gas resources in, that have been found offshore of Israel, uh, Israel's already been able to rev up its, its uh, desalination capacity and therefore eradicate water conflicts with Jordan, the Palestinians. This is essential. In the Middle East, when we used to talk about, well, let's say we get over holy sites, refugees, borders, but what, if, what, what are we going to do about water? That's going to be the issue. And you know, a secret, there's no more need for water conflicts. Um, essentially been able to eradicate this through desalination, through, through the gas, um, and it's, it's very important uh, for the region. I think in terms of the prospects of gas trade from the Eastern Mediterranean into the Eastern Mediterranean, I think that uh, U.S. LNG uh, will, will not um, undermine these prospects because I actually believe in the end of the day it's most likely that it will be exported to local markets through pipeline. Um, and obviously there will always be the price gap between LNG and, and pipeline uh, options. So I think, I think it, in, 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 it doesn't undermine these, these, these aspects. Something um, 
some two things for us to watch. One, you know, we, we're always dealing with the previous problem, right? You know, so we're worried about security of supply of oil when we know we're awash in oil, right? But I think we need to watch North African gas. Um, you know, it's still, as, as, as uh, you pointed out the, at the beginning here, you know, it's still the third uh, largest source of gas uh, in, into Europe. If you look what's happening in Libya, Algeria, I think it's something to watch for the, the future, that it's not a given that that gas is going to be there, that there could be heightened instability in, in North Africa, um, something definitely to watch. Um, and also another development, that the linking of Europe, uh, our, two, our two panels, linking of Europe and Middle East uh, production through the Southern Gas Corridor. It seems like the Southern Gas Corridor is really ripe uh, to import or, or facilitate transit of gas into Europe from a variety of Middle East sources, whether it's Iraqi Kurdistan, whether it's from the Eastern Mediterranean. So I think that um, that will also be a future issue for us to, to, to watch. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you very much to the Hudson Institute for inviting me here. Um, before I go into my substantive remarks, I should preface with my own prejudices that I'm not a huge believer in the geopolitics of energy, which I realize does not make me an optimal panelist for a day-long session on the geopolitics of energy. Um, and I'll explain what that means, but I want you to think of that as I go through my points. Uh, and I'm going to focus more on OPEC and oil and macroeconomics uh, than natural gas, although happy to talk about natural gas if you want in the Q&A. And I want to make four points. Uh, the first one is that there's no need to herald the death of OPEC because OPEC never really controlled prices, and I'll explain that. The second thing is that um, the Middle East is actually much, much better prepared to handle a downturn in oil pricing. And I think trying to understand what's going to happen to the Middle East macroeconomically by looking back at the 1980s is a huge mistake, and I'll explain that as well. Uh, thirdly, uh, and this is sort of the political scientist coming in me, um, I don't think we have a very good understanding of what low oil prices mean for political outcomes. Uh, that I think you can have an oil shock, but how that oil shocks translate politically or geopolitically, uh, I don't think we have a very clear understanding of that, so I'll explain that. And lastly, when I think about the importance of uh, the shale boom in the US, and I think about its sort of global ripple effects and impacts, whether it's a really good thing or a bad thing, I think it still remains to be seen. There are clearly some unambiguous good things you know, jobs, trade balances, and so on and so forth. But if you think about it from the longer term, uh, there are really some huge downsides, and a lot of them depend on U.S. policy. Uh, and Brenda touched on some of these as well. So those are the four points I want to talk about. Let me begin with OPEC. OPEC has really tried to do three things throughout its history. Um, it's tried to, for the most part, OPEC has been a liquidity provider. That is a organization that has sort of spare capacity, uh, that has increased gradually production to match rising demand. That's been since basically 86 all the way through to the present with two exceptions. That's been the role that OPEC has played. Uh, it has tried twice to stabilize the price of oil in a short-term shock. One in 98, 2001, and one after the 2008 crisis. In 1998, 2001, it failed miserably. In 2008, it succeeded. Um, and once, it has really tried to set the price of oil at an artificially high level, at a level that is just too high and where the supply and the demand implications uh, become very pronounced. And that was essentially the period of the 70s all the way to the early 80s. And it was only able to do that by essentially curtailing its own production, uh, either by accident, 
Iran-Iraq war, Iran revolution, Libya, a series of disruptions. I mean, it's kind of amusing as well as scary when you read back 1970s oil production disruptions and how you can just take the same country's volumes and just change the decade, right? Um, and then since 82 through quotas, which even quotas really meant Saudi Arabia cutting oil production. So when I think about, as, and I and here very much agree with Brenda, uh, it's not really much of a choice. I mean, you had a choice of, oh, I can either try to provide a signal to those crazy guys in the U.S. to keep drilling forever by accepting less and less myself, or I can try to not necessarily defend market share. I don't think that's really the motivation. Is to say, okay, clearly 110, 120 is too high, uh, but really we have no idea what the right price is. And I can tell you that as a consultant uh, for the last 10 years, you know, the price of oil, and obviously my oil colleagues get upset when I say this, it's a very simple business, right? It was a very simple business all the way up to 2008 and 9. Because what you did is you looked at the Canadian oil sands, you look at deep water projects, and there's about 40, 50 of them in the world, and you came up with what is the break-even price, what price of oil do these projects need to make money, and that was essentially your floor. Well, you come now to the U.S., and suddenly you have, you know, hundreds and thousands of producers drilling left and right, and trying to figure out what the break-even price, there's a huge amount of variation between plays, within plays, um, and so that's a much more difficult exercise. So I think, oddly enough, what Saudi is doing uh, in a very, I think, in, in a very sensible way is a price discovery process. We know 110 is too high, but we have no idea if 20, 40, or 60 is the right price, and we will find out when they find out as well. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is looking at the macroeconomics of the Middle Eastern producers. And in particular, I have a little bit of a pet peeve because there's a tendency for people to look at the um, fiscal break-even. So this is the oil price at which a, a state's budget balances. And folks look at that and say, oh, it used to be 40, now it's 80. Oh, my God, things are, are, are terrible. Um, and what's really interesting is that if you actually go look at the numbers of, and I'm talking now about sort of Middle East, North Africa, um, so I'm including some of the North African countries, uh, if you look at what, how they actually responded to the oil boom that started in 2003, they responded really sensibly. Uh, they paid down debt. If you look at public debt of most of the Middle Eastern countries, it went down significantly. They actually didn't start spending the windfall right away. If you look at government spending as a share of GDP, it actually declined relative to where it was before the oil price boom. Uh, so if you look at sort of 2009, 10, 11 versus 2004, 5, 6 versus 2000, what you had is high GDP, uh, high spending, falling spending because GDP increases, and then finally Middle Eastern countries started spending more. So I don't think of it very much as a crisis, right? They, they reacted responsibly. They had very low debt levels. They didn't increase spending until they were sure that this was a sort of semi-permanent windfall. Ironically, they did so before the semi-permanent windfall proved to be not permanent. Um, and the other thing is, and this is maybe you know the the Greek in me coming in, is you know when you have a financial trouble, you can cut a lot of things because before you cut things that matter. Um, and you know, I, you look back to the Saudis in the 1980s. You know, they cut their capital budget 85 percent before they touched things that people really cared about. So. What I'm trying to get at here is that you have very high reserves. Some of these reserves are obviously being depleted at different rates. You have very low debt levels. I mean, for the most of the Middle Eastern countries, you have a very high capacity to borrow, including from one another. 
Uh, you have ample foreign reserves, so you can afford sort of a little bit of inflation because you can defend your currency quite easily. And you have a number of vehicles to cope with the danger before you have to do really uh, severely impactful things to your populations. So this is all my way of saying it's messy and it's not particularly clear. This idea that, oh, because oil prices fall, all these bad macroeconomic things are going to happen, uh, it, it, the linkages are not quite as clear. Let me now get to the third point, which is the politics of this. And this is, you know, I came to the energy world. I'm a political scientist and economist by background. I came to energy to understand politics and geopolitics. And so <laughs> 10 years later, I understand energy really well. I still don't understand uh, politics and, and geopolitics. And, and I think what I always struggle with is that it's having looked at the literature and having studied sort of academic studies and, and sort of the more, um, you know, layman's literature, uh, it's really hard to draw very clear lines. So you have a country that has less, uh, you know, less revenue. So we know that because oil prices have come down. Well, is this country suddenly going to say, well, we can't afford foreign adventures, let's scale back? Uh, is this country going to say, well, we can't afford to give subsidies, so then domestic populations and elites get upset, and so you have a challenge? Or do they say, hey, we actually need to make some serious reforms in our economy, and so they try to open up? Or do you have folks that say, well, things aren't going so well. Maybe I need some foreign enemies to get people jolted up and, and excited and have them regain faith in the, in the national leader. And, and I think if you look at the history of the Middle East, if you look at Russia, if you look at Latin America, there's plenty of examples of all these things coming together, right? I mean, we got Hugo Chavez courtesy of the 1998 oil price collapse, right? So this idea that uh, at low oil prices you have necessarily politically good outcomes or politically bad outcomes. I think it's completely wrong, and it, it really comes down to the circumstances, the individual circumstances of each country, and even in those circumstances, whether things are going to turn out for, quote-unquote, the better or the worse, I think is anyone's guess. And so I always caution folks that try to make big statements in terms of like, oh, you have you know, loyal prices, that weakens our enemies. You know, it's kind of like, well, sometimes weaker enemies try to be very strong to conceal their weakness, and sometimes, you know, weak enemies may do good things that you like, and so I don't think that's a given on either side. Which brings me now to the last point I wanted to make, which comes down to what is, how do you think about all this from a little bit more of a U.S. perspective? Now, I, I happen to think that, you know, the U.S. does a lot of things uh, because of the price of oil. Um, and I think that's dumb. I, I don't think the price of oil for a country like the U.S. really matters, right? And this is a, I didn't realize it's a bold statement. Uh, we can get into it if you want to. But, you know, macroeconomically, the price of oil doesn't really make a big difference. Um, so at the same time, what I worry about is the kind of thinking that Brenda alluded to, which is that, you know, if, if the U.S. says, you know what, Middle East, who cares? We got oil. Um, you know, that kind of thinking, or if, if the U.S. says, you know what, we got gas, let's try to figure out how to stick it to Gazprom. That's the kind of thinking that worries me, right? Because if you step back, you know, the commoditization of energy is a major geopolitical blessing, right? The idea that energy, that molecules flow based on more or less supply and demand principles, you know, tweaked obviously by politics, but more or less, you know, if you're willing to pay, you're going to get energy. And that has been the way that our energy system has worked for a very long time. That, I think, is a, is a public good. It's a, it's a great blessing. And if you start tweaking of it, 
Yeah, I mean, you can say that, oh, when Russia does it, it's energy weapon, but if the U.S. does it, it's leverage, not weapon. You know, it's kind of the same thing, and it leads to the same outcomes, and it leads to some of the similar uh, unintended consequences. And so I think what really worries me is trying to leverage this in ways that you have no idea how they're going to play out, or leading to conclusions like the Middle East doesn't matter, uh, and then you have things like Syria where... You know, and I say this as a European, it's going to be no surprise if, if you were to tell me you know, in 40 years that the unraveling of the European Union started with the Eurozone crisis and the Syrian civil war, I have no trouble believing that, right? So I think that there's a danger when you try to read too much into what oil means and therefore make political judgments that in hindsight prove uh, unwise. And with that, I'm going to stop. Excellent. Um, Moderator, I get first crack at it. Um, and my question is this. I'm going to ask a, I guess you'd call it a technical question. Energy 101, right? This is the way you're always taught. Oil is a global market. Natural gas prices are set by local markets. And that natural gas just doesn't have the dynamics to become a global market in which you could become, you could become a swing producer, in other words, in global oil markets by your positioning in the in the marketplace and the supply. But in natural gas, it isn't possible. Does that still hold true, or are we going to move towards, perhaps because of the shale revolution, perhaps because of a big expansion in terms of liquid natural gas exports and the ability of infrastructure to absorb and to continue to, to supply gas where it's needed? Are we going to see an emergence like this, or does the old rule still hold true? Either one of you can answer that one, or both. Um, okay, I think it could go either way, and I think it's really important because kind of like the, the, the mainstream thinking is that, okay, with U.S. US exports, we're, go, you know, we're, we're, we're going towards a, a global market of gas versus you know, markets of gas. And I do think it can go either way. On one hand, in terms of price, obviously, we're seeing these ripple effects and, 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 and markets affecting each other, which we haven't seen in, the, in this scale uh, in the past. On the other hand, unless there's some sort of technological change and the, and the how we produce LNG or, or, or and the price of it, still there remains this gap between LNG prices and pipeline. And at the end of the day, you know, like all the things that we, for instance, that we discussed in the previous in the European panel, like even if you get LNG there, at the end of the day, people are going to want the cheaper pipeline gas, you know, coming in from Russia and sort of security of supply is a public good. It's kind of like if I tell you, you know, to buy a safer car. So you say, okay, I think that's a good idea, but I might not be able to afford that safer car, right? So obviously, in the end of the day, we see the choices in Europe. They go for the, uh, the you know, the cheaper Rus you know, Russian gas over most, other, over most other options. And second, we have to look at the limits of geography. Um, you know, as much as we're interconnected, as much as we have the internet, still, Gas is about, you know, it, it, it's about a physical connection. Even most of the LNG trade, we should think of it as floating pipelines because still most of it takes place in, in long-term contracts between a certain supplier and a certain consumer. And so, you know, most of the, most of the countries that have security of supply uh, challenges can't even access LNG because they're landlocked or, you know, or because they don't have the interconnectors. We need to think about not only diversification of gas, you know, so that there would be gas on gas competition or, or different suppliers, but how to use um, national infrastructure, building storage, building uh, dual fuel plants, 
um, a, a variety of tools we can use to offset even when you're a single supplied uh, state. You know, and going back to like it, what Nicholas was saying about different, you know, we tend to, you know, the things we read in the newspapers, uh, the balanced budget versus the oil price. Well, another one of these other myths is the percentage of Russian gas as an indication of energy security. So there are some countries that have, you know, 100% dependence on Russian gas, like Poland, for instance, almost 100% of their, their exports. And yet, the, because they don't use gas much for the power sector, because of, you know, that actually, they, and they do good storage and they maintain that storage, they actually have very good energy security, even though they're single supplied. And you can take other countries like Bulgaria, for instance, which have options of local gas, have options of bringing in other gas, and yet because of the, because of the way they manage their natural gas sector, they have poor you know, energy security. So even single supplied states can have different, different ways in terms of security uh, of supply. So um, yeah, I think we should, it, it's not clear that we're going towards this uh, global market and definitely an issue to watch. Uh, my take is I, I think of a global market in sort of two different ways. If you think of a global market as disparities, right? U.S. to Japan 16, you know, big price disparity. Um, if you think of it in that way, you know, the, the market is definitely becoming more global, right? The, the price disparity has changed. Interestingly, that has nothing to do with gas, right? The price of LNG in Japan has collapsed because the price of oil has collapsed, and the price of LNG in Japan is still driven by the price of oil. So the disparity between the U.S. gas price and the Japanese gas price has narrowed because of shale oil, Okay. Uh, a few years ago, the same thing happened where the U.S. and European markets were connected through coal, right? You have very cheap gas displacing coal, coal being exported to Europe, pushing down coal prices in Europe, therefore putting downward pressure on gas prices in Europe. So there are clearly mechanisms that can arbitrage between uh, different regions. If I think of a global market in a slightly different way, which is I think of it in the oil way, which is I define it as shocks reverberate, reverberate globally. Right. So if something happens in Iran or Nigeria or Venezuela and the price of oil goes up a dollar, it goes up for everyone. Right. If I think about are we close to getting to that in gas, we're not. And I think primarily we're, we're not because prices in Asia are still predominantly linked to oil. That's what really matters. Right. In Europe, you have a gradual transition. In Asia, you know, people like to quote the spot price and look at the spot price. If you look at the price of LNG in Japan, it's still highly, highly, highly correlated with the price of oil. And until you have a price of gas in Asia that is driven by supply and demand of gas in Asia, you're not going to get a global market. And you're not going to get there until governments are willing to break some eggs in the making of that omelet. Right? And if you look at how every region in the world, the United States, the United Kingdom, continental Europe, transitioned from one pricing system to gas-on-gas -gas competition, it went through regulatory push, it went through arbitration, litigation, bankruptcies. It's a messy process. Most Asian countries, I think, want the benefit of cheap gas, but not of the messiness that comes with getting cheap gas. Gotcha. Just, just to add to this, that we shouldn't see necessarily gas-on-gas -gas competition and hubs as necessarily promoting public good. Because in the United States, is a completely different animal than most of the other gas markets uh, around the world. And you know, when you have really thousands of players, uh, uh, and, and you have the gas being homegrown, you don't have the energy security considerations. Well, if you're an island in, in, in Asia, or, or if you're a, a, a political island like, like Israel, or, or, or for instance, 
you're, you, might, you might not want to depend on, on those type of uh, uh, mar markets with gas. Um, and, and, we and we should think of gas, you know, gas is a utility, there's a reason we call these utilities. It isn't a commodity for most, for most you know, the, the, reason, the way we use it. Um, and for paying for security of supply and, and uh, I mean, hubs, for instance, in Europe, I think they could be easily, you know, price manipulated. They really are not, uh, it, there's no, nothing like Henry Hub and, you know, in any other place in the, in the world. Um, we have time for a couple of questions before our conversation with Congressman Pompeo. If you do have a question, just wait for the microphone to come around and I just remind you to identify who you are and to tell us about whatever affiliation you may have that you care to disclose. It's all clear. Yeah, question here. I'm Pete Perascos with ITTA, and I was wondering, uh, Brenda, if you could share your thoughts on um, the recent state of play with uh, gas discoveries in the offshore eastern Mediterranean. Thank you. Um, you know, it, as uh, I think in our previous panel, it would, Ed Chow pointed out how long it took for Australian, you know, gas discoveries to end up to, you know, LNG exports. Gas is, you know, gas takes a long time. And I think, you know, in the, uh, in the, Eastern Mediterranean, you know, and specifically in Israel, you know, we want we want things, you know, very very quick, you know, and I think there's a lot of expectations in the world that, you know, here there's this game changer, and um, I, I think I don't I don't think things are developing so uh, uh, poorly, actually, you know, and I don't I mean the fact that countries are going through um, examining their pol policies and regulatory framework and antitrust framework, I think this is actually a, a, a good thing. Um, that again, gas is a utility. It's, it's a, um, um, so so I think the fact that the, the you know and, and I think some some excellent things that have happened. The fact that Egypt has offered you see how important offering a good price uh, for gas, um, how it's had complete you know immediate results with the discoveries uh, in Egypt. I think we're going to find more discoveries in Egypt. You know you have BP. There was a, with a, a huge investment um, in, in in drilling right now. So I think the the any any discovery will be replicated in, in by BP and by other by other companies. And so I don't think these things um, hurt Israel or Cypriot uh, chances of, of export because you know when there's more resources, it actually increases the chance of of, of export you know, when, as a basin. Um, but at the end of the day, like I, I think that the gas, its main consumption will be in the region itself. And this isn't a negative thing. This is actually a good thing. It could be a high-paying market. And then again, to solve so many of the region's problems in terms of water supplies, in terms of electricity, um, you know, with, with, with 4 million refugees in Jordan, how essential it is for electricity and water um, to get into Jordan. Uh, if there's ever going to be a rebuilding of Syria, this uh, electricity and water will be essential. So I think at the end of the day, most of the eastern Mediterranean resources, maybe except for, for Egyptian ones, um, will be used in the region uh, itself. Yeah, Ken Monerker at World Docs. Uh, how much of the international oil trade is subject to the spot market? I think uh, it's about 40 million barrels a day that's traded internationally. How much of that is tied up in long-term contracts at set prices or uh, intra-government, intra-company transactions, uh, barter arrangements, et cetera? Um, the short answer is I don't know, but 
when you think about long-term contracts, you may have a volume contract where the price is still set according to spot markets. So uh, I wouldn't. So you may have a lot of oil that's going to trade on long-term contracts where the price is still set according to you know monthly or weekly or daily supply and demand. Right. So uh, and in terms of the you know barter agreements or side deals, I'm not sure if that's oil that isn't traded in spot markets or if there are other financials that change that calculus. So for instance, you know, if I've given you a loan and you're paying it back to me, we may still price the oil that you're giving me according to the spot market. It's just that it doesn't involve the monetary transaction. Uh, and for barter, I don't think there's, I don't know that there's much oil that doesn't get priced according to those principles, even if the cash element of that you know, may not be you know, just me putting money in your bank account, but, but me repaying a loan or, or in other ways. Uh, settling. Well, one more and then. Uh, hi, Anthony Livanius from US Energy Stream. Uh, what is the impact of the US LNG exports in the region? What do you see as uh, in commercial terms and geopolitical terms? I think, yeah, as, as, as was pointed out in the presentation, sir, you know, I think the main um, difficulty is that it's, over, the, it's overestimated the impact of it uh, on the region because there's, a, there's an idea that, um, you know, again, the U.S. It, it finds the Middle East dispensable or, or the U.S. is going to desert us, you know, and, and these themes that you're seeing um, in the region. Um, and in terms of gas, in an ironic way, the prospect of U.S. exports in the long term could hurt uh, gas consumption in the region and, and in general, and, and, and I'll explain this. Um, because the countries are going sort of the easy route of, you know, of um, LNG, uh, floating LNG, regasification, well, this is really expensive. So in the end of the day, um, I think you're seeing some of these countries that are bringing in regasification facilities because it's very fast. It's a sort of a public answer, you know, to energy security. But in the end, they're using coal, you know, so they're like, it's, it's floating there. They're paying for it. Um, instead of thinking out and putting the time investments, the financial investments into bringing in, in gas. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned about this, again, because of the price gap that when you see, okay, we have this quick, you know, this quick option of the floating LNG, but the people are, but actually they're consuming very few, uh, volumes and this could actually up the usage of coal and, 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 or, or, or alternative fuels to natural gas. And again, because of the environmental and public health benefits of consumption of natural gas, I think this would be, um, you know, really a, a mistake if, if uh, uh, they, they give up the investments in the, in the pipeline options in the region or in Europe as well. If I could just add one thing. If I think of it, it goes back to what Brenda was saying about the Middle East being a consuming region. I mean, if you look from a gas perspective, really you have Qatar, Algeria, and a little bit of Libya, a little bit of Abu Dhabi, a little bit of Oman. But really... You know, Qatar, Algeria, and less so Libya are the main sort of exporters from the region. Uh, on the importer side, you have Kuwait, you have the UAE, uh, you have Egypt, you have Jordan, you have countries that are trying to do more imports. So, in a way, you know, having more affordable gas um, is can be a very good thing for those countries that are looking to import LNG. I mean, Egypt is now importing LNG, Jordan is importing LNG, uh, and so for those consumers, again, it's sort of a you know, intra-regional transfer of wealth, right? So from the gas rich that may be earning less for their LNG, but then the energy poor are able to access a new source of energy that is considerably cheaper. And of course, it's also cheaper by virtue of drop in oil prices. So it's not purely the LNG side. 
And the fact that the, that the, the Middle East is both a, a gas exporting region and a, you know an LNG importing region, it shows how the lack of interconnection in this region. You know, the fact that countries don't trust each other to import you know uh, 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 gas, you know, will prefer for expensive LNG when they could have easy you know easy pipeline options. You know, and I think one thing that's way overplayed. I mean, that the fact that. You know, Iran obviously sitting on huge natural gas volumes underutilized, but that is not going to be utilized by its neighbors because they, you know, the lack of the, wanting, not wanting to have the dependency uh, on Iran. I think it's way overplayed how much Iranian gas actually could um, get to its neighbors. Uh, I mean, they've been working on gas to Iraq, which almost is a you know no-brainer commercially, physically, and you know, and, and so many impediments even for that to happen. Well, I guess we can say from the conclusion of this panel that. Quotation that Mark Mills used in his opening statement, the more things change, the more they stay the same, seems to apply to the energy picture in the Middle East as well. Thank you both very much.